think the future is young and we need to have a lot of young people being elected because right now when we see many people who run for offices and places they are not young people and the young people have different dreams and goals that's different than people who are right now in those kind of positions young people really are saying this is my future they, they have a reason to go and be active and to have a lot invested in these issues because that's the world they're going to grow up in and maybe raise kids in. I'm Marisol Morales. Emily Shields. And I'm Andrew Seligson, and welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. How are you guys doing this afternoon? Doing great. Yeah, really good. I hope that wasn't confusing for people who might be listening in the morning. You know, mm. it's afternoon, I think, for all of us where we're recording. Yes, I checked. Just it's barely. Afternoon, even yeah. Central Time, exactly. Uh, so if you if you are listening in the morning, I hope I've not disrupted your sense of time. Our building cafeteria did a did a like a Thanksgiving thing for lunch today, um, a turkey thing. So I might be having I might just fall asleep. Well, I got a little trip to fan happening. Is it? Is, is it? I, I hope so. Otherwise, you might be subject to arrest. Uh, so, is it like the building cafeteria? Uh, strong culinary performance. It like, actually is. Yeah, yeah. I really like it. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know the. Chef, I like the chef. It's run by Goodwill. Uh, which is cool. So it's providing employment opportunities for folks who need them. Um, like re-entry, other specific things. But uh, yeah, they're good, actually. Yeah. So I had turkey and dumplings for lunch and it was awesome. <laughs> I, I like the fact, so uh, here at the Boston Intergalactic Headquarters of Campus Compact, uh, many of us acquired our lunch today from a local eatery in the neighboring Chinatown neighborhood called Jean's Chinese Flatbread Cafe, which is one of the great places to eat on earth. And I actually was not among the people, but several people did have dumplings. They were probably quite different from the Thanksgiving dumplings uh, that you enjoyed. But dumplings were, were, that's a theme that's, you know, for (laughs) cross-cutting national campus compact offices across our great land, people eating dumplings today. I did not eat dumplings. I ate a nice kale salad and with salmon, and it was very good. And a delicious Mayan mocha, which was great, from this really good restaurant in Chicago uh, called The Goddess and the Baker. So next time you guys are here. All right, Goddess and the Baker. I, I actually had hand-pulled noodles, which are phenomenal, one of the Jean's uh, kind of legendary menu items. And uh, yeah. Just it's just a little hole in the wall where I don't know. It feels like hundreds of people pack in to seek their lunch every day because it is shockingly good. This is a little picture into the culinary habits of your hosts of the Compact Nation podcast. <laughs> I'm sure, it's just fascinating for everyone. Yeah, they, they um, don't care. Involved. <laughs> yeah, no. Should we talk about Should we talk about our dreams next? I think that yeah, was, that's the yeah. like. If there's anybody who hasn't hit uh, pause or just <laughs> shut the thrown their iPhone out the window or whatever, please that don't come, clear come out. Come back to us, listener. <laughs> exactly. Uh, 
All right. Well, that that makes it sound like we should get into some more uh, subject matter related content here. Uh, Like Thanksgiving. What are you guys up to? (laughs) Yeah, like Thanksgiving. So, yeah, Thanksgiving. Well, we could talk about our personal plans. We could talk about how we're thinking about the holiday. Any really Uh, good tradition? I'm not not making turkey. No. No. I make gumbo. Interesting. It's good. It's a hit. We've had Thanksgiving in lots of different contexts over the years, so I don't know if there's a single kind of tradition that... uh, runs through it is i i do love thanksgiving I do uh, too. recognizing its deep historical complexity its connectedness to our genocide uh, fraught history and yeah exactly but it's still true that i love the holiday uh and i guess that's true of everything in america right it's like i don't think we need to not have joy in our lives even though we recognize there's nothing in our lives that's not connected to things that themselves uh, you know, are not complicated and problematic and whatever. But I don't think you could live the other way. At least I couldn't live the other way. Right. We did for the second year in a row, we sent out a thing, a happy Thanksgiving email to our network here in Iowa and Minnesota to kind of help with that. Cause I agree with you. Like I love Thanksgiving and time with family. And I think it's also important to reflect about the history and it's a good occasion to reflect about the history. Um, so we've sent it on at an email to just kind of help people think about that. I mean, acknowledging um, land and the people uh, from where we're from, but also providing some good resources. If people want to learn more about, about Native history, about Indigenous culture um, as a part of this holiday. Uh, So we we put out a bunch of links and um, we can share them as part of the podcast uh, if that would be helpful. There is another podcast called This Land by Rebecca Nagel that I have found just completely fascinating um, that's about some current court battles happening with tribes in Oklahoma and it's just it's so complicated and she explains it really well. I loved that podcast, but there's some other pretty specific resources like um, eight ways to decolonize and honor native peoples on Thanksgiving and stuff like that. So if you want to incorporate that kind of stuff into your traditions, I know for us with my little kids um, talking about this stuff in a really in a more complex way is important to me because I think schools are doing better, uh, Mm -hmm. but the representations are still pretty, you know, surface level and there's a lot we can do at home. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, about how you make meaning out of this um, holiday while also acknowledging kind of the roots of it. And, and um, I think decoupling it from the sort of happy go lucky narrative that, you know, a lot of us were taught in school to something more complex, but also recognizing that um, it is a time of like harvest and gratitude and family. And, you know, you can still honor that piece of it while acknowledging, you know, the sort of complexity of it as well. Let's see other things we want to share that are going on in the compact network. Marisol, you want to talk a little bit about webinar? Yes, we have had some wonderful webinars, uh, specifically um, this month in November. We had a great uh, webinar on decolonizing the curriculum that um, had a... 
some folks talking about sort of indigenous ways of knowing <laughs> and ways that um, at their uh, university in Montana, um, they did some trainings around uh, native uh, culture and, and, and history and um, and really good strategies for folks to think about what it means to decolonize the curriculum. And then we had one on votes and ballots, this um, really interesting um, way to sort of engage uh, a tool in class uh, for students to understand like organizing and uh, getting out the vote and sort of the votes and ballots process. So um, check those out on our uh, compact.org website. I uh, will just call folks' attention to the fact that if you want to support this podcast and all the other things we do at Campus Compact, uh, we are making a little push for Giving Tuesday coming up next week. And you can find information and support us at compact.org slash give. That's compact.org slash give. We appreciate support of every level any dollar amount, et cetera. We really just uh, are gratified when people decide they want to help us do the things we do. Uh, you know, we sometimes talk about this, but we are in the large scope of things, a small nonprofit organization seeking to make big things happen uh, by connecting higher education to the common good in all the different ways we do. And uh, again, if you value that and want to be part of it, we would appreciate it immensely. So compact.org slash give. Yep. Please give to the work. <laughs> All right. Um, I think we will head toward our interview for this week. I had a phenomenal opportunity to sit down with two extraordinary young people. So we talked a little bit about the fact that we recently had our Newman Civic Fellows Conference, our annual gathering of Newman Civic Fellows from across the country here in Boston at the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the United States Senate. Uh, as By way of background, if folks are not familiar, the program um, invites every president or chancellor of a Campus Compact member institution to nominate one student each year to be a Newman Civic Fellow. This year we have about 260-odd fellows, um, and about 200 of them were able to come together for this conference. It's uh, a couple of days of learning and connecting with each other. They're an amazing group of people. If you go to our website, um, you can see bios for all the students and their own kind of statement about their own work. And I would encourage you to do that. They're just an inspiring and uplifting group of humans to be aware of. Um, but I sat down with just two of them for a conversation uh, kind of just before the conference activities started. We were at the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, just kind of got a conference room and sat down for a conversation. Uh, so Cameron Connor from Whitman College and Zainab Abdi from St. Kate's in Minnesota. Uh, and I just chatted for a while and we will now go to that conversation. I am very pleased to be joined by two of our Newman Civic Fellows. Cameron Connor is a senior at Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington, and a politics and rhetoric studies major. Hi, Andrew. Nice to meet you. Nice to have you here. And Zainab Abdi is a senior at St. Catherine University in St. Paul, Minnesota, majoring in political science and international relations. Zainab, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. So... 
I want to start by talking a little bit about some of the things that each of you do that are why you were selected as Newman Civic Fellows, and then maybe uh, get into a little bit why you do those things. But to start with, just give people a sense of what are some of the activities. So, uh, Zainab, I know that you've been involved in uh, voter access work and helping students get engaged as voters. Uh, and I know that you also have been involved in advocacy work uh, related to Yemen, which is your country of origin, uh, and, and work that's connected to educational opportunity for girls around the world. Do you want to just give us some highlights of some of the things that you've been involved in? recently that are that are exciting to you um, so recently in the last two months I went to New York because they had the UN General Assembly about the girls education so I went there and talked about why it's important to educate girls and why it's important to fund in countries that there is crisis especially like my country in Yemen and other countries like Syria and Sudan and and Egypt and other countries that are going through a lot of crisis and girls need a lot of support in those countries and Somalia as well. So I went there and I talked about those and I have been advocating for girls education not only this year, uh, it was since 2015. This is something that I have been passionate about um, since I came to the United States because it affected me as someone who stopped going to school for two years because of the revolution that happened in my country. And I was also involved locally with organizations like um, the Green Card Voices of making sure immigrants share their own story, tell who they are, why they came to the United States. And with the civic engagement, which is an interesting hobby that I started last year, uh, engaging students to vote as someone who can vote. That was so interesting to see a lot of people don't vote, don't understand the power of voting, and also to understand what is those resources and how those people could make those change and impact. So I worked with the community worker learning um, to get more information of like, how can we um, impact uh, students to understand the importance of voting? How can they understand um, why those uh, elected people, newly elected people, will impact their education, their life, and their decision making for future. So those are my work, really. Okay, and when when you uh, the work that took you to the United Nations. Is that done? Are you working with organizations that are local or, or global uh, on on the issues of girls' education? What's what's sort of the, the connecting point for you that led you to end up speaking at the UN? Yeah, I, uh, at this time I worked with Blend International, and they were working on the Education Cannot Wait campaign. So they asked me, they reached out to me, and they asked me to be their speaker. Uh, mostly, I work with Malala Fund on her campaign of girls' education. What was the experience like speaking at the United Nations? It's it's great. It's a lot overwhelming, but it's great. And having that strong platform to share your story, uh, hold people accountable, making sure that people need to do actions, um, talking to amazing representative. And I really enjoyed having discussion with the Denmark uh, Ministry of Education. Um, and talking to them about like the importance of like funding uh, Denmark funds for education, and they really ha- did a good pledge and funded for the education. 
That's great. It's nice when not only one gets the opportunity to uh, to speak to people with some power, but also when you see them take actions connected to the things. Uh, and that that's a rare pleasure, I think, sometimes. Often we do work for a very long time before we see positive outcomes, but that's great when, when you can see that. Uh, it fires you up a little bit when you see it, it work. Uh, so Cameron, um, you also have worked on a number of issues that have kind of different geographic locations focused on them, et cetera. I know you've done work that's connected to Nepal and the well-being of people in Nepal. You've also been doing work, I think, more recently focused on kind of neighborhood level engagement in Walla Walla where, where you're in college. So can you also just talk a little bit about sort of what are some of the big things you've been involved in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it was fun when we were walking here, we were talking a little bit about uh, the challenge of saying, you know, what do you do? Because there's so many different things you do. Um, and it's all kind of part of a big story. Uh, and so I, my story begins with my parents who've been working in Nepal for the past 36 years at this point, um, kind of on the forefront of the fair trade movement. And I grew up coming uh, to Nepal back and forth from Spokane, Washington, and in 2014 co-founded the nonprofit Conscious Connections Foundation to work with girls' education, as a matter of fact, um, and primary healthcare in some of the more remote rural villages. Um, and that was alongside these people that I'd grown up with in Nepal um, over the course of I think I was 16, so 16 years at that point. Um, and out of that, we ended up creating this beautiful foundation that has sent numerous young women to school. We've actually expanded into boys' education now in some of the more rural areas, because that's what people have asked for. Um, and in 2015, when the earthquake happened, um, it was one year after the foundation of the, or the creation of the foundation, uh, and we suddenly had this platform for disaster relief. And um, through huge support from uh, local and international donors, we were able to rely on those relationships that we built through 36 years um, and get into a lot of small villages um, and throughout Kathmandu and do disaster relief work, um, often before a lot of the big international non-governmental organizations got there. Uh, and we transitioned because we had these relationships from immediate relief to um, long-term recovery. And so we are working in those same villages and communities that we did back in 2015. And so so uh, my part in that was to uh, I took kind of an uh, unexpected gap year uh, to go over and manage some of those projects on the ground um, with some of my dear friends there and uh, ended up doing uh, a substantial evaluation of the emergency relief that we did provide to see how then we could um, build lasting relationships that actually contributed to the communities that we were working in. Um, so it wasn't just go in and get out, um, but something that was more substantial and sustainable. So we uh, worked through emergency preparedness and I ended up actually working with um, some people who then uh, went to work for the UN High Commission of Refugees on the northern border of Greece and I uh, went with them to spend several months um, in the largest refugee camp there in Itomeni. Um, doing construction under the UNHCR. And this, this narrative is really about community because the thing that uh, allowed people to succeed in these very challenging situations was coming together and um, establishing foundational relationships um, whereby they could rely on one another. And so when I came back eventually and did uh, enroll in school, the 
thing that I was focused on and wanted to learn more about was that aspect and the power of those relationships and community. And so that's now led into my work with the Walla Walla City Government, creating their new neighborhood engagement program to hopefully um, systematize or institutionalize some form of collective action um, or a mechanism for collective action that residents can engage in. And that's um, accessible to all different elements of the community, all different communities. Um, and so a large part of my job is doing outreach. A large part of my job is just creating the infrastructure necessary for something like this to happen. Um, but there's a broad story there, hopefully. Does that answer your question? <laughs> well, these are not questions that ultimately get answered, right? Because these are these are big, as you said, long stories that are that are complicated. But I, those are great, great things to jump off from. And, uh, you know, an area I'd like to talk a little bit about is so both of you are doing work that has um, a kind of global context or a context far afield, but also work that has a very local focus, domestic to the United States and local to the places where you are. And if, if we, for a moment, focus on that uh, domestic kind of local work, I'm wondering what what have been surprises for you in that? Like, what, what are things you've seen that you weren't expecting to? What are maybe some things that you feel like you've learned from working with people in the places where you're going to school and in the communities uh, nearby? So, Zainab, what maybe get us started on that? So, um, we were just also talking about this when we were walking here. Um, so, in 2018, which is last year, when we started just a civil engagement collective um, group of like seeing what we want to do, what kind of events we want to engage students in, like seeing how engaged students are and how those issues really matter for them. Um, climate change, gun control, and other like uh, issues, including education, like why we don't have like free educations and healthcare. So those issues has been like a very important issues, but we never had that kind of like a platform of like giving the young people a, a space for them to talk. It's, it's usually like bringing speaker, someone come and talk and discuss of like, hey, here is one, two, three, and then people get with that information, either knowing what to do or not knowing what to do. Knowing, like having those kind of tabling and interacting with students, asking them what they care about, what's the issue, what they want, what kind of change they want to see. It was just impressive to see the young people having all those ideas, getting out to protest, getting out to do the school strike, um, in line up with the uh, climate change that's happening. So it's amazing to see the young people finding what kind of path they want. And that was so impressive. And I think the future is young and we need to have a lot of young people being elected and a lot of people, young people being prepared, trained and go to those fields to make those kind of change. Because right now when we see many people who run for offices and places, they are not young people. And the young people have different dreams and goals that's different than people who are right now in those kind of positions. So the, those kind of was impressive things to learn about and also learning the passion of the young people wanted to do a lot of things. And as you heard about like, we had 14% up of young voter turnout. And this shows that people know what's going on and really want to get engaged. 
and I'm I was so happy to be part of helping those young people to find a platform to get engaged, express their voice, and understand that their voices matter. Cameron, what would you say? Surprises, things you've learned? It's a good question. Um, I think, A, I've learned a lot. Um, but I think the power of relationships really has surprised me, the power of bringing people together. Um, to have difficult conversations because uh, I think that's something we need in the world at the moment, right? Um, but to be able to recognize the humanity behind someone else and say, maybe we, we don't agree on something, but we can rest in that disagreement and still get things accomplished together. Um, and so, especially with this work uh, on the neighborhood engagement program, bringing people together. I co-hosted a, um, our first neighborhood summit with the mayor of Walla Walla, Barbara Clark, who's an amazing woman, uh, just here a few weeks ago. And it was based on getting people to have conversations. It was kind of one of the launches of the program, but also uh, the first thing we did was, you know, turn to the person next to you, talk about why you came and why your community is important to you because this is about community building and we want to start right now. So getting, truly seeing the power of coming together as a community has really surprised me. I worked in a lot of um, random different fields as an EMT and in, uh, yeah, emergency preparedness, but there's something more systemic about that aspect of relationship building that I really uh, want to continue learning about. And let me, so Cameron, I, I don't know a ton about Walla Walla in particular, but I picture it as a small city in a rural part of Washington state. So I would imagine that if people sort of think of Seattle, it's not the same thing in terms no. of who's there and what their views are and the mix of things. It's got a college in it. So it seems like a kind of place where if you're bringing together people at the neighborhood level, everybody doesn't necessarily see eye to eye on everything. Yeah. And what, what have you seen? You know, we, we have such a focus now on polarization, the yeah. idea that we just scream at each other, say horrible things on Twitter, and yeah. that's where it ends. What, what are you seeing in in a place like this where you're working, you know, at the ground level with people? That's a great question, and that's that's really why it's so surprising. Because you'd think there'd be all this animosity and tension when people get together. Um, but it's a lot harder to say those things to someone's face directly when you sit down with them and have that conversation. It's not impossible, and that definitely does happen. Um, but... In the experiences I've had uh, in getting this program up and running within the city, people have been very willing to take risks and to try and um, work things out. And again, even if you can't arrive at a solution, that's okay. Um, but getting the opportunity to understand where someone is coming from has proven really successful and surprising. And so, Zainab, you talked about trying to change the dynamic from just students listening to somebody who's supposed to be an expert talking at them about something to generating dialogue. And I'm wondering, in a similar way, uh, obviously, in, for example, in Minnesota, there have been tensions surrounding immigrant communities with some hostility toward immigrant communities, hostility toward refugees. Um, what have you found in when you do open up dialogues with fellow students who may be from various parts of Minnesota or from other states and are studying there uh, and th these kinds of issues are on the table. What's it What's it felt like for you? What's the experience been like? What level of willingness to engage and listen are you, are you finding? 
So if it was in another school than our school, it may be turn out a fight. But our school is really very welcoming school, and the social justice that has been implemented and taught since we were like first year to us was very important and helped every single person to see that we are beyond of who we are, where we came from. And that helped with those dialogue to understand who we are as a human and why those issues is interesting to us. And as uh, as I told you, like we also like nonpartisan, so we make sure that we don't lay, like as a Democrat or Republican, we make sure that it's a general issue, just talking about the topic, not mentioning certain parties. Um, and that helped a lot of people who are from certain parties to come and talk about what they feel without feeling attacks. And those kind of dialogue was very important and understanding why people wanted those um, discussion because they really wanted their voice to be heard. And they, do, and they felt that that was an environment for them that they could express their opinion, express their voice without feeling that this is a democratic-led um, support or campaign or discussion. So it felt more of like this had nothing to do with any parties. This was like just a student-led discussion. And that was important to see how many people from different parties are be, feel, feeling welcome to come. and and discuss about their own issues. So Cameron mentioned um, kind of the, the your your story, your personal story, and how uh, this links in. And we'll maybe have you expand on that some. But Zainab, I want to start kind of doubling back with you. Uh, where does all this come from for you? Like, where where does the work that you're doing now fit into who you are and and how you came to be in the place you are right now? So in 2016, I was the first year in the fall semester in my dorm. And I just remember outside of one of my neighbor's room in the same floor, watching at the TV and everyone watching at the 2016 results. And everyone just was crying, panicking, and having all those like heart attacks of like, oh my God, we didn't win, we lost, and Trump won the campaign. And for me, it wasn't about party. It was more of like what this president had been running for banning Muslims from entering the United States, uh, banning Mexicans, no LGBT rights, and all those minority people, and also attacking women. So it felt a lot to handle in that moment. And as someone who was just a first year, I didn't know what's going on. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what's happening. I have no idea about what election is. It's only a, part, a day that we were just waiting for that result. That's the only thing that I know about the election that time. And I really didn't know about like how people vote, what those elections are, how people like engage in this. And I think the moment of hopeless that I felt that time and felt it in the eyes of my like neighbors and roommates, that was like the moment of like, why we don't get engaged in this? Why we don't decide what that looks like? How can we have a dialogue and discussion about those things? Why we don't be involved in and out? I know I have been involved outside with campaign managing, um, but from inside I made it sure it's like, I don't represent any parties. So I could make sure that 
another first year don't feel hopeless watching that TV and seeing a result and saying nobody told me about this I have no idea what was going on so that was the story I think um, and also with the Muslim ban that happened and how that impacted me making sure that people understand who they vote for and how they those could impact them people sometimes don't do research on what those people campaign are what those people are doing they just like oh, this person, I see their names in money science, I'm voting for them. But we really don't do the, those kind of research and comparing, regardless if they are the party that we like or not, but what they really do is important, even if they're part of our parties. Cameron, for you, uh, having, um, I don't know whether you use this term to dis- describe yourself, but I know that some folks who have kind of grown up in two places talk about third culture as a kind of way they think about their their own context. But certainly the context of having these two cultural spaces that you're in. What's that like? Like, do you do you wish that there was more comprehension where you are of these like broader global issues that you're working with? Are people interested in those things? Have you thought about how you can connect these local dialogues to broader issues? Like, where where do those things come together for you if they do? Um, I think that aspect of a third culture is interesting. Um, I don't think that's the idea I've struggled with as much. But more of how do I, as a white man, come into this other community and do so in a respectful or just a responsible way? Um, And it wasn't something that I had thought about when I was two years old going there, um, but it's something that I've had to come to terms with now. And it's not something that can be resolved or made perfect, but that has been the... the some, my responsibility. Um, so I think that has been the biggest question. Um, in terms of connecting these things, do I wish people were more aware? I mean, I have so much left to learn about it all. Um, and I and I do think the work that I do all really connects. Um, because I've uh, spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to make an impact in the world and um, based off the issues that I've seen or had uh, had the opportunity to lend a hand in. Um, and it, it comes down to those systems that are at play in the world. Um, and girls' education is one of the most valuable things that we can do as a community, as a global community. Um, and I think the other part is coming together as a community. And so I want to work to provide the spaces where we can think in that way of not only what relationship, what um, what responsibility do I have myself, but what responsibility then do I have to others? Um, and so I'm in the midst of applying for a Watson Fellowship based on that exact same thing, looking at how different communities come together to provide for the needs uh, of the collective and of the individual in doing so. And how are those foundations stronger and how are they stewarded on from one uh, generation to the next responsibly? So in terms of global issues, I think I, I like to try and think in terms of systems work and I think fair trade is a good example of that there's definitely ways it can be done better but yeah why does the world have to work the way it is and can it work in any other ways this is this is hopefully what you might be learning studying political science and <laughs> things like that in college we, we hope those questions are on the table uh, Zainab what about you in terms of uh, Coming from a place that, as you said, uh, where kind of the conflict that has been going on there affected your life directly. Obviously, United States policy is connected to what's happening in the region, generally in Yemen in particular. Uh, 
what's your experience of kind of what Americans do or don't know about those issues and and your thoughts about kind of responding to that? Yeah, um, I know a lot of people sometimes don't know that the involvement of the U.S. in the war in Yemen um, last the, the past two years. I have been going to like organizations, libraries, places, and talking about like how this is a huge issue. Connecting with senators, representatives, and asking them to vote that U.S. should stop and ban selling weapons to Saudi Arabia and how this because this is impacting the war in Yemen so I know the the the, the House of Representatives and Senator voted to not fund uh, weapons uh, to Saudi Arabia but it was vetoed by the president and that was very sad to see um, I went outside protesting I went outside talking to other people but it's, it's hard when it becomes under the most powerful person to, to decide what this looks like. Um, telling my story, I think it's the most and the easiest, the simplest way I could do right now. Um, after knowing that nothing will be changed and everything is under the hand of the president, but understanding that we should not be silent and those stories need to be told. Uh, we need to understand that how those things are being affected. People need to understand how their taxing and their money goes to those kind of war and how this impacting. Um, if we didn't tell those stories, then people would never know that there was a war in Yemen, which is like, it was funny that someone told me that they didn't know there was a war in Yemen um, when I was in a meeting and I was talking about my experience in my life. So we had a war since 2011 continuing to now so it's almost like over eight years um, and I hope the war um, stops yeah. so one of the things uh, that you talked about earlier Zainab was this sense that there's a generational divide emerging in the country but also some energy in, in your generation to, to get engaged. And I'm wondering, uh, I mean, I'd like to hear both of you talk about this. What do you see? So first of all, what's the nature of that divide? Like if we were to say, what is it that right now is pulling apart younger uh, people in the United States and maybe around the world from older generations, right? I think everybody's been, you know, the, the okay boomer kind of hashtag whatever is maybe the simplest way to capture that. But like what, when you think about what is that about, what would you say about that? And what do you think are the opportunities, if you see opportunities in it, that it creates? Maybe you can start saying it because you were, you were talking a little bit about that. But that first question, yeah, what's, what's it about? Yeah. As I mentioned, like climate change is one of the huge things. And I understand some of the older generation understand that, but they're not being impacted by it in the future. And so the young generation like just panicking about what this is gonna look like for them in a couple years from now. And knowing that the decision is under 
other people than them. She just makes them more worried of like some people not, not understanding how those plastic, how those carbon dioxide, how all those are impacting their health, impacting their environment and like the tree and everything. And if we are not doing anything right now, if we are not committed to any of those um, climate commitment, then we just killed a new generation. And I feel that division is like, the young people feel like, I don't want to die. These people are not listening to me, not doing to what we want. Therefore, we need to be strong and we need to be together with like making our own a group of people that work together and march together to do change. And we see young people also running for offices right now. Um, and young people starting a huge campaign on March. And that was like great to see all those like strikes, Friday strikes and climate strikes as happening. But also like with the gun violation that you see, it was led by young people. So there is a lot of march and campaign that has been led by young people. And I feel that division and divide is happening is just because they feel that these things are being backed by them. Even though some people fight for rights for them, we fight for future. So I feel that division that's happening, but we need that kind of listening moments like if people in power, people who are like presidents, Congress, um, men and women, they need to listen to the young people. They need to include them in decision making. They can't say we will decide the good for you because the young people know really what they want. Cameron, what are your thoughts on the, the generational question? You said it very well. Um, but to build off it, I think young people are always really good at sensing exigency, right? So they're good at sensing that, ooh, there is something not good here, and it's marked by a lot of urgency. It needs to be addressed quickly. Climate change is one of those things. We live in an era that is marked by greater inequality than the Great Depression, and people are learning about this. They're sensing it. They're feeling it. They're growing up in that context. And so to understand that that's not okay, and that the United States also has a different role in the world than it traditionally is occupied, there's a good reason to go to the streets on that. So I think in this generational divide, young people really are saying, this is my future. They, they have a reason to go and be active and to have a lot invested in these issues because that's the world they're going to grow up in and maybe raise kids in. So if we hope to live in a world we, we want to live in, now's the time to act. And the young people are really the ones who are looking forward to see what can be done about it, I think. And I'm, I'm not sure if it would be different in any other generation. It just depends on the issues that are facing the world right now. And we certainly have a lot of those issues to confront. And I think a lot of young people are rising to the challenge. And I look forward to seeing um, how we continue to do so. So here's the final thing I want to talk about. Campus Compact is an organization of colleges and universities. Our focus is about how higher education can contribute to making the world better in all the ways we've been talking about. And you, you, I think, both have had, like, you know, extraordinary experiences in your institutions from everything I've gathered at St. Kate's and at, at Whitman. But I'm wondering if you have suggestions, either for your institution in particular or just generally what you know about 
about, you know, friends who are at other institutions. What more could colleges and universities be doing to advance this work, to position their students, to be engaged, to be contributing to, to positive change in, in the kinds of areas we've been talking about? What thoughts do you have about that? I think, like, having them with the curriculums, like, adding those civic engagement, social justice within the classrooms, um, because having those events, having those well-organized things could be amazing thing, but only certain people could come to those. But when we have it part of the school values, when we have it part of the classrooms, and when we have it in everywhere, then this helps for every single young student, for every single student to be engaged civically and to be part of this movement. And I think also having that connection between school to other schools, which is like this new human fellowship is doing of like connecting young leaders from different schools together so we could exchange what's going well in your school, what's going well in my school, how can we exchange, how can we give advices to one another. I think that's a very well organizing thing. Yeah, I would second all of that as well. Um, I also think that um, accessibility is a huge issue, and especially, you know, I go to a small private liberal arts school. Um, I'm the student representative of the Board of Trustees, and I know that's something they're working incredibly hard on, but we still have a long ways to go in terms of that. Um, so making sure uh, that Whitman is more accessible and affordable in the future, and building off of that local engagement, I think there needs to be more courses um, focused on community engagement, getting to know this place that you are a part of and how you can contribute to that. Um, and even beyond just um, engaging the faculty in that, acting, uh, Whitman can act as an anchor institution in the community that it's a part of because it has a significant investment in that place and it can also have a significant uh, economic and social impact there to help support local communities so that if another recession does come or just economic stability or instability in general, Whitman can play a huge role in making sure that uh, Walla Walla as a community gets through it okay. Um, so I think those are two of the things. I think Whitman does a wonderful job and is incredibly supportive of its students but um, we should always be looking for those ways to improve. Well, Zainab, Cameron, thank you both so much for joining us uh, as guests on the Compact Nation podcast. And, and more than that, thank you for all the things you do that are the reasons you were nominated to be Newman Civic Fellows and that, that we I had the chance to learn a little bit about today. Uh, I feel like I learned a lot and really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you both very much. Thank, thank you. you. We are back, and as is our practice, we're going to talk about some things that spark joy. I will uh, stipulate that everybody's joy has to be sparked by listening to those two students. So we'll just assume <laughs> that and right. then move forward uh, to other things that, that spark joy for us. Marisol, you have a joy sparker? I do. Um, well, when I first was thinking about it for this podcast, I was thinking about my son, uh, Diego, and uh, just how I love seeing him grow into uh, a kind young man. And so uh, just had some sort of recent conversations with him lately that made me feel like, oh, things are sticking. All the stuff that I try to teach him when he was little, even though he went through his little rough patch, but... Um, 
that he's a beautiful and kind uh, young man, and I'm excited about that. So that's one thing. And then the other <laughs> thing is, I just watched the latest season of Man in the High Castle, and that oh, was really, yeah. really good. Is it good? It is. Okay, the ending, the ending was a little like, eh, but I think it was a, a metaphor for like our current political. Don't, don't give, don't give date. anything away. Don't give anything away. But I've, I've been kind great. of up and down on that show. My husband loves it, and I am at times like. What are we doing here? No, but. I really, I really uh, enjoyed it, and and this uh, this season uh, much more. The the very end, how they closed it, I was a little like, uh, but I kind of, I think, get the metaphor for what it was. So I I can't get over the fact that they named a character Frank Frank. I really just, it's hard for me to work past that. I don't understand that choice. Uh, I, I never, never really thought that through. I do love that show. I feel like I've discussed it before mm-hmm. on the podcast, maybe multiple times, having sometimes forgotten that I'd already done it. Seems seems like a thing I might have done. Uh, but I have not watched the new season. It's this has good. to do with the complexities of when I watch which shows having to do with what shows Martina wants to watch and which ones she doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so I watch the ones she doesn't on airplanes. And so I get a backlog sometimes. Yeah. So have not watched the new season, but I'm glad to hear that it's, uh, it's very it's good. worth watching. Yeah. Excellent. We've been negotiating over whether we're going to watch the new season together or Mickey has to watch it alone. So, okay, fine. I'll watch it. Yeah. That's really good. I liked That's my joy. Emily, what is sparking your joy? I will say I, um, it's not a very current reference, but we did finally watch Bohemian Rhapsody this weekend, and I'm obsessed. Um, I just think Rami Malek did such a great job, and I have always loved Queen and Fred- Freddie Mercury, but I feel like the the appreciation goes so much deeper just watching that. I mean, it's just incredible, um, just incredible voice, incredible showmanship. It was really good. So I'm kind of on a queen tangent in my life right now. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to do two because Monty sold it. So I, I just had that. You, you should totally I'm do just that. Going for it. So one is uh, I was just reminded uh, when you were talking about Queen, even though there's basically no connection here except music, we saw a band called Lula Wiles. Uh, so it's Lula Wiles, like L-U-L-A-W-I-L-E-S, uh, that we've seen a number of times. There are three young women um, originally from Maine, all of whom studied at Berklee College of Music in Boston. They play a kind of mix of bluegrass and all kinds of stuff. It's hard to describe. Um, they're incredibly talented. And um, they're, I mean, one of the interesting things about them is they do some music that's political, some music that's just stuff, life stuff, whatever. Uh, and they're very kind of conscious and thoughtful about, uh, about making clear what the political stuff is about and, and why they think it's important to do that and mix that into a concert that's about entertainment, whatever, but they were fantastic. Uh, so Lula Wiles, I highly recommend, uh, giving them a listen. And then the other one that I was actually planning to do was, uh, I wanted to celebrate the signing into law of uh, the bill in Massachusetts finally prohibiting 
handheld phones while you're driving. So most of the rest of the country has done this already. We are finally catching up here in Massachusetts. But as a person who commutes around the city on a bicycle, and you can just see that when people are driving a car holding a telephone, no matter what they believe, they're not seeing about 75% of what's happening around them. And people, I mean, I think about it in terms of like our values and commitments to full participation communities. In general, in a city, the people driving around in cars are the wealthiest people and everybody else is at their mercy. And so to create cities that are safer for people on foot and on bicycle, people who use public transit and then walk somewhere or whatever, it's like a big deal to me that we finally are getting around to doing that. So uh, that sparks great joy that our city will be a little bit safer for people not driving around in big hunks of steel and taking up a disproportionate share of the road. So that sparks joy for me. I have another one because we're doing two. All right. And I it's, have one that I. It's double joyous. It's, it's the Thanksgiving special. Well, I, right. I had thought of one before and then forgot about it. So a truly joyous thing for me um, <clears throat> and lots of people. Last week was Transgender Remembrance Day. And Iowa was the first state in the nation to fly a transgender, the transgender, transgender flag at, on our state capitol. Wow. In honor of that day. Um, yes. Uh, I Go have some Iowa. Friends. I know. I have some friends who were a part of making that happen. And it's very exciting to see us be the first to offer that kind of support and remembrance for that important day. So definitely um, a joyful experience to see that kind of recognition and representation happening. Definitely worth adding a second uh, sparked joy. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, that is it from us at the Compact Nation podcast. Thanks for listening. And as always, don't forget to rate and review our show. If you have any questions or suggestions, we always like to hear about them. Podcast at compact.org. Or you can join us on social media at hashtag Compact Nation pod. We wish everybody a very happy Thanksgiving and one filled with thoughtful reflections on the complexity of our national history. Uh, And that's it. So bye-bye. Bye. Bye -bye. (laughs) Bye-bye. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in the Leather District of Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Altiorem Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. You can find more of his music at andrewsavage.net. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. I am the podcat.